Last week, we talked to you guys about the need for additional help with our host team and production, and I just want to say to those of you that uh, made yourselves available, thank you very much. Those are our two biggest areas of need serving right now, is getting people to help with check-in. Um, the reason that we do check-in right now is because if somebody does get sick, we want to make sure that we're able to communicate with everybody who was here that Sunday. Uh, and then with production, uh, we're having to make sure that everything that we do online is a little uh, step above what we normally would do because we do have so many awesome people who are watching online uh, and are not able to be with us live. And so that being said, if you are uh, interested in serving in either of those areas, please let us know. You can see myself, uh, any member of the production team can get you connected with Quinn, same with the host team to get you to Chrissy and they can get you plugged in into a rotation. Uh, our goal is so that we just don't have the same people feeling that burden every single week. Uh, and then I will say to those of you who are online right now watching, we love you guys. And those of you who are here, feel free to get your devices out, log into the chat, and you can chat with uh, your friends who are watching online. Completely fine uh, for you to do that. So we're starting a new series on the book of Daniel, and we're not going to do a verse by verse on this. I would love to do that. Uh, uh, we, we lay out our, our calendar of what we're teaching pretty far in advance, and we do that through prayer, fasting, asking God, what would you have us learn during the year? Uh, and then we lay that out, and of course, uh, there have been a number of changes to the calendar that, you know, we could not foresee because of the pandemic. And so there are a couple of things that we had slotted that we're moving around. And one of the things that we're doing is we're moving this little mini series into this slot. And I'm really excited about it. And we're doing something a little bit different. You'll see that I have a timeline up here with me. And this is my first time to ever do anything like this. So hopefully uh, it makes sense for you as we go. I think that it's important though, when we're talking about uh, uh, the, the idea of this book that we get some context, and, and context is, 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 is really critical, and we keep talking about this, uh, about the importance of context this year. Context matters. It matters in every news story that you get a hold of. It matters in every Facebook post that you're being shown, every meme. If you don't have real context, then what happens is, is you, instead of using the context that the story comes from, you use the context of your personal experiences. And the unfortunate side of that is that books like that of Daniel can then, because we apply them within our own personal context, they get used for our own personal gain or our own personal meaning. And we don't want that. We want the word to direct us. We don't want to direct the word. Amen? That, that, should, be the, that should be the heartbeat of a believer is that the word shapes me. I don't shape the word. And so uh, what I want to do is give this kind of like bird's eye view of the book of Daniel, and that's going to require us to look at some significant dates to be able to do that. So week one, I've titled today, How Did We Get Here? The book of Daniel takes place in Babylon. Babylon is one of those names of a city, of an empire, of a group of people that are very famous. Uh, it shows up in pop culture all the time. The uh, ideas of Babylon are in everything from uh, comic books to horror films to uh, supernatural thrillers because Babylon doesn't just show up as a, as a namesake within the scripture, which is really important for us, but it shows up inside of literature 
literature and culture for thousands of years. So this was a city, this was an empire that was uh, led by a very occult-driven mind and was a merciless empire, uh, very famed for the way that each of its leaders were ruthless on its people. And Daniel, a young Hebrew boy, is taken into captivity, into Babylon. But I, what I want to do is I want to set the stage for how he got there, all right? And for us to do that, we're going to start in 621 B.C., so we are pretty confident of these dates based on all of the archaeological evidence that we have been able to gather uh, through the years, compiled with uh, various texts that have been put pieced together. So 621 BC, and when I'm giving some of these years, most scholars don't debate this really by anything more than maybe a year or two difference in opinion, okay? Uh, I'll also add in here for you that when we're talking about the book of Daniel, there was a pretty widespread opinion and uh, that Daniel was written after the fact as prophecy. And so it was like this historical work that was written like it was prophecy. And the argument for that was that it was written around 200 BC. The problem with that theory was that when a couple of decades ago, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we actually found, co found copies of the book of Daniel that dated back to uh, the 600 BC time frame. And so it kind of makes that argument fall apart. Can, can, I, can I just, I'm going to add some things in here I think that are culturally relevant as we go. So if you go and you get online, and which I would challenge you, anything that you hear being taught, uh, I, I don't exempt myself from fact-checking. I want you to fact-check. I want you to fact-check everything in your life, right? If it's going to steer the course of your future, if it's going to have the potential to steer the course of your destiny, you should you should do due diligence and look into it and make sure that what's being communicated to you is true. And, and, and what we have to be mindful of is that Sometimes things will get said that are not true, and they'll get published, and they'll get out into the community, and then we'll discover that it's not true, and another story will run saying that this isn't true, but instead of deleting the, the, the falsified story, the, the story that isn't the facts, instead of deleting it, it just continues to live out there. And, and then what happens is, is that when people go to do research, they find the, the falsified news article, whether that is about a current event or whether it is about something historical, and then they take it as a fact. And what we see in the news constantly around us, whether it is current events or whether it is something that happened, you know, thousands of years ago, is that, that we can disprove something, and yet it, the idea of it will continue to live on because what we have created in the internet and the exchange of uh, of communication is a, a, a ability for people not to take responsibility for incorrect information. So just be mindful of that, right? Be mindful of the fact that sometimes context and looking at a, a greater portion of a story can impact the story, like I believe that this will here today. So 621 BC, and what we have is uh, a new king in Judah. And this guy's name is Josiah. Manasseh had been king. This is his grandfather. And Manasseh, Manasseh is uh, actually assassinated. And when Josiah becomes king, he is eight years old. I just want you to think about that for just a moment. He becomes the king of Judah at the age of eight, is what the word says. 621 B.C., the age of eight, and the Assyrian Empire 
right, which has control of this great city Babylon, is in control of everything. And Josiah, an eight-year-old, becomes the one responsible now for leading God's people. Now, something that's important for us to take note of is that you have more than a century of Assyrian rule, and during that time period, you have these Assyrian emperors, these leaders, coming into the territories that they control, and not only do they say, hey, listen, you've got to pay tribute to me, and you've got to pledge your allegiance to to the Assyrian Empire. Also, you have to worship the gods that we tell you to worship. You have to participate in the activities that we tell you to participate in. And the kings of lands like Judah, Egypt, surrounding nations, they not only did they capitulate to this, but they actually allowed themselves to become infected by it. And Manasseh, the scripture says, was a very wicked man. And not only did he do whatever was asked of him in disobedience to the Lord, it became so bad that the people of the land by this leadership were honestly unaware of the expectations of God. And so for a century, more than a century, Judah is being led into this mindset that is evil, it is wicked, and it is filled with all these uh, practices that birth out of the various cults that come through the Babylonian empire. Now, we make our way to 611 B.C. We're 10 years later, all right, and Josiah is 18 years old. And the Assyrian Empire is at this point in disarray. Uh, uh, they are, there's inward fighting, they're disorganized, and Josiah really has, has gotten lucky as a king being eight years old. Instead of having an emperor that's lording over him, the emperor at this time is too consumed with, with trying to reestablish power at home that he's not paying any mind to Judah, to Israel at the time. And so Josiah takes advantage of this, and he begins to try to reorganize the nation. And one of the things that he does is he sends for them to go uh, and clean out the temple. Now, this takes place in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. And the story is that as they're cleaning out the storerooms, they find this old book. And they open up the book, and they're fascinated by what is inside of the book. And so they take it to Josiah. And Josiah begins to read the book, and the Scripture says that he begins to weep, that, that he is broken and torn, because what he discovers is that God made a covenant with his ancestors and that they walked away from obedience within that covenant, that God and his goodness and mercy and grace and love and might, that all that he had done for them, they just abandoned it because it was culturally easier to just adapt into society. And so the scripture tells us that Josiah, at 18 years old, begins a complete and total reform of the government and their way of life. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is really powerful in a moment. At least it was for me. I hope this is going to be powerful for you in just a moment when I connect some dots here. Josiah is 18 years old, and he is doing everything he can to lead an entire nation back to God 
while this wicked empire is disorganized and in complete and total disarray. Now, when we think about the great kings, right, of Israel, when we think about the great Hebrew kings, the name that always comes to the top is David. David, uh, Jesus says, was a man after God's own heart. He gets double acclaim for that. And I'm not trying to down David in what I'm about to say, but I just want to point something out, a passage in Scripture that is so often overlooked and it's about an 18-year-old boy in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25 says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And so the word of the Lord says that there had never been a king and never again would there be a king like this 18-year-old named Josiah who so quickly turned from everything that was wicked and evil and in total pursuit of God. Verse 26, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And I, it, it'd be really easy for me just to read the previous verse and make us all feel great about Josiah, but it, in fairness, we need to understand that even though Josiah did this and, and was an a, a incredible young man, stepping into his real potential and honoring God, there were consequences for the actions of a nation that had repeatedly, time and time again, turned its back on not God by saying, oh, we don't believe in God, but on God by living the way that he had ordained. And so you have an 18-year-old who is responsible now for leading a nation into the wrath of God. That's his responsibility. I, I, for me, like, I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking about it. It's like, I'm 18 years old. I, I, I love the Lord. I repent. And, and the expectation now is that God is still bringing judgment, and I have to be the leader that walks us into that. One of the passages that I hear quoted, and I've heard it a lot lately, is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. And, and, and I hear it just like this, and I, I, I want to say I love this verse. It's a powerful, powerful verse, but it is a more powerful verse. That's a tongue twister right there. In its entirety, because there's more in the sentence than let no one despise you for your youth. Paul tells Timothy, but set the believers an example in speech, so with your mouth, right, in conduct, your behavior, in love, that's the way that you interact with humanity, in faith, that's your interactions with God, and in purity, the way that you carry yourself out sexually, the way that you present yourself to the world. He says, let no one despise you for your youth and do not compromise in these areas. And this is a picture really of what we see in Josiah is that he, he, had, he began the process of repenting and God saw that. God, God saw that and the word said that there had never been a king like him nor would there be after him. 
Now, I talked about this process, right, of, uh, of uh, uh, disorganization that was taking place in Assyria. Uh, one of the Assyrian clerks, okay, uh, his name was Nabopolassar. He revolts. So while God is working in Josiah's life, this man, uh, Nabopolassar, begins a revolt, and he is creating a revolution that is creating divide and war in Babylon. I didn't really dig into to the, to the depths of why he did this or what was his justification for doing it. What I know is that as he did this, it created concern for Egypt. Now, they had been completely conquered and dominated by the Assyrian Empire at the time, right? But they saw this new revolution as a bigger threat. And so what they did was they, they actually aligned, they went to an alliance with this Assyrian Empire to try to, to, try to maintain the disagreement. What we find in the uh, Egyptian his history books is that the goal was that by feeding into this revolution that was taking place, if they could keep them disorganized, the Egyptians believed they could raise up an army and then they could overthrow both of these armies and ultimately take over and be the rulers of what was basically the known world at the time. And one of the things that they did was they went into Judah in the attempt to create a, a dominance there. Now, Josiah, man of God, right? He ends up himself going into this battle, and the battle takes place in an uh, area that's called Megiddo. And it is actually in Megiddo that uh, as Egypt joins Assyria, uh, that Josiah will die. On this battlefield with the Egyptians in 607, Josiah is killed, all right? So he is in his 20s, right? And he dies in this battle. Now, something that's significant that I want to point out about Megiddo, because Megiddo shows up in our, in our Scripture several times. Uh, when we actually get into the, the Greek, the New Testament, uh, it's called Armageddon. Uh, and so it is the Valley of Megiddo is what we refer to as Armageddon. Now, probably you've heard Armageddon and you, you've kind of got this picture of like, well, that's the ultimate war of all wars, right? It's actually a location. It's the Valley of Megiddo. And there have been a number of military battles that have taken place for thousands of years there. The most, the most recent one uh, took place in the early 1900s. Uh, when the British would come in and defeat what was known as Palestine uh, during this time, all right? So they come into Megiddo, they conquer the land, and they become the ones that ultimately are in charge of what is known as Palestine. And I want to just do a little bit of uh, a little rabbit trail for you, because I think some of these things are important for us to understand about this territory. Uh, so the, the word Palestine is the Greek word for Philistia. When the second temple was destroyed, right? So you have Israel proper, as we would call Israel. When, when, when the Romans come in and they destroy the second temple, this is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, right? They, they want to mock Israel. 
And so they changed the name of Israel from Israel to Philistia, all right? And the reason is because the Philistines had been, in essence, the, the kind of the nemesis of Israel. So what they do is they change the name of the territory to the Greek word for Philistia, which is Palestine. So Israel is still the Israelites. It's just being called Palestine as a means of mocking the Hebrew people. Now, we talk quite frequently about revisionism, and I, I kind of point some of these things out. We have definitions that get redefined, right? And so if a word gets redefined and we take the new definition and we apply it to ancient history, right, all of a sudden, like, it takes on a new meaning, so we have to be really careful. And I want to give you guys an example of how this has actually taken place. So this is a map uh, that is from Encyclopedia Britannica from 2012, all right? And in this map, it is showing the territory here they have labeled as Palestine. According to them, this is what the area looked like in 975 B.C., all right? Look at the capital, Jerusalem, right? Damascus, Palestine, and this is the time when David was king. So this form of revisionism is to communicate, especially to younger generations, that David was the king of Palestine. And the reason that this is so important is it aids in an argument for absolving Israel and giving that to the Palestinian people. Now, what you'll notice here is that you have Palestine, but right here you have Philistia. The Hebrew word for Palestine is Philistia. The Greek word for Philistia is Palestine. So according to even this map, even though they show a territorial line, this is all actually the exact same place. Now, if you were to go and look at what I would believe to be some more accurate maps from 975 B.C., this would be called Israel, and this would be called Philistia. Now, I'm not saying that people who are being oppressed, if they're being oppressed, don't deserve to be taken care of and loved. I just want to tell you that sometimes we're given information and there is some agenda at work behind it that, that we have to kind of get our heads around. And Israel as a nation has always, they've been in this land since God gave it to them thousands and thousands of years ago. And what we call the Palestinian people of today are actually people who were from nations like Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan, who when in the 40s, uh, we, we began to recognize Israel's governance again, were denied a return back to their homeland. And so they ended up trapped in this small area. And then in 1978, Yasser Arafat took on the mantle of calling them Palestinians. Should they be loved? Should they be cared for? Yes, they need the gospel. They need to know Jesus. They have just as much right to the access of the gospel as any of us, and we should be compassionate and care about it. But that doesn't mean that we have to be a part of jumping into some type of reformed historical documents, right? Now, I'm going to jump back into my message. I wanted to point this out. This is the land that we're talking about, though, okay? All right? So they come in, and they, the Egyptians, they kill uh, uh, Josiah, and the people of Israel, what they want is they want uh, to make his younger son, Jehoahaz, the king, okay? But 
the king of Egypt, his name was Necho, he did not want this. And so the, the history tells us that he actually came and took the son and made the other son, Jehoiakim, the actual king. Now, we find this in Scripture to even be validated because we know that Jehoiakim becomes the actual king uh, of Judah. Now, at the exact same time that this is taking place, there is a son named Nebuchadnezzar, right, uh, who is the son of Nabopolassar, and he is now fighting in these battles, and they are beginning to win. They have pretty much all but wiped out what was the previous Assyrian Empire. This will be referred to as uh, the Chaldean Empire. And so they're coming in. They're wiping these people out. They are now creating an exertion of domination over Egypt. And because Egypt had just come in and basically put their thumb down on Judah, Judah was still in a position of being submitted. And at this time, somewhere in here, Jeremiah gives a warning. So we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah begins to give a warning to the people, and we, we, what we know is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has died, and Nebuchadnezzar now has become the king, and simultaneously, right, there is something that's about to happen that God has been warning the children of Israel about for more than a century. Verse 2, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. So I've been here for 23 years. This has been going on for a really long time. And not only did you not listen, you didn't even want to listen. You didn't make an attempt. You didn't go, well, let me listen to what he's saying and see if there's anything about this. You just completely ignored a consistent message that was coming from the servants of God. Verse 5, saying, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. So what is this? This is repeated warnings. Repeated warnings have come to the people that live here over and over and over. You need to change the way that you are living. You have, you have the teaching that comes from what we already have of the Word of God. You have prophets. You have teachers that are bringing forth instruction. You need to not be worshiping other gods. You need to make sure that your life is lining up with the instruction that's been given to you. And because you are not doing this, there will be consequences. Repeated warnings. And how do those repeated warnings come? They come over and over and over from the prophets and from the leaders of the church. 
And, 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 and I know that it's easy for me to say maybe in your mind, and I, I say this really cautiously because I'm a pastor, but I want to tell you that God continues to speak through his leaders. He continues to speak through pastors and prophets and teachers and evangelists and apostles. There is a ministry that he set up, and it is for our benefit. And let me tell you what you should always expect. You should always expect there to be contradiction from society that, a society that denies God and the Word of God and people who are teaching the Word of God. If there isn't any, if there's not any distinction, one of two things has happened. Either society is loving Jesus or the church is loving society. But as long as the church is loving Jesus and the society that's around you has not adopted the ways of God, there will be contradiction. And there will always be a reversal of opinions that takes place between the two as they are attempting to invest and speak into your life. And so what happens? Nebuchadnezzar is crowned king upon his dad's death. 605. And what does he do? He comes down into Judah and he takes a group of, this is the first of three waves of Hebrews that he will take. He takes a group of, uh, of people from Judah back up to Babylon, okay, and they are now his captives. We have a boy named Daniel and his companions that are among the first wave of these Hebrews. And that's going to bring us into Daniel chapter 1. And I want you guys to track with me, knowing some of this. I'm going to bring it back in just a moment. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So he comes into the city, right? And it, 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 there's, there's total control that has taken place here. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, okay, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So what does he do? And this will make sense next week when we dive into the, the, into the life of Daniel, okay, when we get into his time in uh, exile and captivity. But what does he do? Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes some of the, 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 the vessels and they don't, use this, they don't use the word idols or statues or anything like that because that would not have been allowed to be something of, of, of importance for the Hebrew people because God said, make no graven images of me, right? When you typically go into a temple, what do you see? You see a bunch of like statues of their God made out, right? And so these vessels, these ornate things that they had decorating their temple, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he has those things taken where to, the, to the, the house of his God and has them set there, right? Into, the, into this treasury that he has. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them 
a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Uh, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called uh, Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, some significant things here. They are they have Hebrew names, names that speak life over them according to their customs and traditions, their view of who God is. They're brought into a new land, and that name that would speak life over them is taken from them, and they are given pagan names. And, and Daniel, Daniel lets us know that basically, in essence, he now has two names right? Because he refers to himself as Daniel. He knows who he is, but he also knows the name that they're going to call him by, right? And so when you're reading this, you'll, you'll see this, this name kind of, kind of being used interchangeably. They're educated, right? We want competent, capable people to be brought in. And then the word says that, that Nebuchadnezzar wants these to eat the food that he is presenting to them and begin the process of living in their customs. And Daniel says, you know what? I am going to make a request that you allow us not to drink of the wine and eat of the food, but instead allow us to just partake in a very restricted diet. Now, the reason was is that the meat that was being brought to them was the leftovers from that that had been sacrificed to idols. And one of the things that they had been taught was that you do not eat this meat. It dishonors God. And so you have this as a part of the problem. They also are not interested in being drunkards. And so they don't want to engage in the lifestyle of this group of people, and they are submitted, though, to the leadership of somebody else. Now, one of the things I'll point out here, and, and some, some scholars have commented on this, that they are given over to the chief of the eunuchs. So, this guy's responsibility is to be in charge of the eunuchs, which means quite possibly the reason that Daniel never marries is because he and his friends were all forced into this lifestyle and became eunuchs. And so you have a group of young men who have their own hopes and dreams for their lives, right? I mean, what, what teenage guy is not thinking about one day getting married, being able to engage in intimacy, on some level, right? I mean, these are just natural things that become a part of conversation and a part of you reaching puberty. And so, so any hopes and dreams that they had, those were taken from them, right? They were educated, right? And who would they have been educated by? They would have been educated by people who loved God. Why is that? Because Josiah reformed the nation. He repented. And so Daniel is a child watching somebody who is just a few years older than him fall on his face and repent. Can I tell you, like this blows my mind thinking about it, how on time God is. 
right? He is going to use Daniel to steer the course of history. I mean, we'll get to some of this when we get into his life next week and into his prophecies in the third week. But here is a young boy who is watching somebody not much older than him turn from wickedness and say, God is the only way, and we need to live for him. We need to love him. And the teaching that began to birth out of Judah was that of, you need to know the word. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And that's what had been instilled in Daniel's life. And so there was a tremendous advantage in Daniel's life because Daniel had been raised by people who had repented and turned their hearts to the Lord. And and, and how do we know that? Because he goes to the chief of the eunuchs in the midst of everything else that was happening to him and says, hey, I want to try something different because I want to show you that my God will show up and do what your God won't. And what happens? They have their hopes and their dreams taken from them, right? And then they were to be re-educated. You see, the Scripture says that when they got to Babylon, they spent three years going through school so that they could learn all of the ways of their gods and the way that they should behave and the way that they should live. And we'll jump into this in the coming weeks, being asked to bow to idols and to engage in idolatrous behavior. And this group of young men will not do it. They would rather face death. And it it might feel like, I just want to say this, like in your life, You might feel like, man, I am trying to live for God, and I just feel like I am still just marching straight into the fire. But God God did not call every single one of these people to be a Daniel. He needed a Josiah. And the life that you're living might be a life that is meant to impact somebody who will one day stand before the fiery furnace or a den filled with lions or some type of impossible situation. And the only way that they'll see it through and then that the, that the message of God will make it to the other side is because of the mentoring and love and compassion that you walked out in your life for God. And Josiah dies in his 20s in battle. What is it said of him? There had never been a king who had so wholly turned his heart to God than this young man. And the influence of that young man, I am telling you, is what made Daniel the man that he became. And God uses this young man, Daniel, to shape eternity. Can I tell you that in eternity, forever, the story of Daniel will be one that is talked about. We'll wrap up here with these final verses. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So they have eaten a completely different diet. 
The chief of the eunuchs has been worried that they're going to look sick. They're not going to have the energy right. This idea of fasting is going to deplete them. And they get brought into Nebuchadnezzar. And just to give you some historical perspective, Nebuchadnezzar was the kind of guy, and we'll get to some of this next week, who was like, hey, if you don't look like I want you to look, I'm going to cut you up and burn your house to the ground. And people would be like, oh, I can't do that. Oh, no worries, because I'm going to cut you up and burn your house to the ground. Like, he just didn't care. So there's a lot on the line right here. And Daniel is brought in to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, watch this, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here he comes, having gone through the re-education. He comes out on the other side. He has a firm grasp on what it is that they believe, but he has not allowed it to change his heart. I heard a story of a young man, uh, a young man that I know. He was telling me that he was in a uh, class on the, uh, it was a uh, uh, art religious class. So like they were looking at art that was inspired because of Christianity. And uh, the teacher brought out a famous painting of the Last Supper, right? And so this is a, a painting of the disciples sitting with Jesus, sharing that final meal before Jesus would ultimately go to prayer, be taken, beaten, and crucified. And he said that he was sitting there, and the professor said, this is a painting of when Jesus turned the water into wine. And he raised his hand and was like, I'm sorry to, sorry, um, that's actually not the same story. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine at the beginning of his ministry, right? Actually, before it was time, in fact, it was this wedding, and his mom had told him, you know, please, will you do this? And he said, it's not my time to do these things, but he went ahead and did it anyway because his mom asked. I mean, we all know when mom asks, we do what mom asks, right? That's what I tell my kids all the time. There's no way around it. Mom asks, right? Right or wrong, she's in charge right? And so he does that, and then he says, he says, this is actually the Last Supper. And you know what the professor's response was? Who's teaching the class? And you'll be tested on what I tell you the painting means. And he came to me, and he was like, I, I just, I couldn't believe that, that, that the professor was saying this to me, right? See, part of what happens when you are uh, in the process of education, which is really important, and there's nothing in these texts here that says that being educated is not something that's really important. What's really important, though, is that in the process, that if it doesn't line up as a way that we should live, an ideology or an understanding of the Scripture, that we can understand that the world sees it this way and walk in wisdom and not allow our hearts to be penetrated. Right? This is why I can sit there and watch a, a, a podcast from somebody who hates Christians but is considered to be the foremost in their field. And I can listen to them talk and say everything that they need to say, 
and draw a line between the fact that what they're saying is a view of the world I live in, but it is not the view of my heart because God reigns supreme. And my challenge for you this week, I'd like for you, if you're able to, to read Daniel's chap- Daniel chapters 2 through chapter 6, all right? So that's a chapter a day less. You won't even take you the whole week. And they're not very long chapters. You can even listen to it. I won't deduct you uh, uh, any points for that. Just to familiarize yourself with the text, because next week we're going to dive into the, the life. So the, the first six chapters kind of deal with the, the, his life. The, the last six chapters focus, not exclusively, but primarily with his prophecies. So we're going to be focusing on those prophecies in week three uh, and, and how that they are uh, restated inside of Scripture, right? That they're not just prophecies that are just given to Daniel, but they're actually expounded upon, and we find some of that in the book of Revelation. I'd like for you to do that. And then I'd also like for you to think about in your own life right now, where do I have compromise? And Think about where do I have compromise, and then I want you to ask another question. You might have to kind of write these things out. Who is watching me right now? Right? Who do I have in my life that I think is looking at me and thinking, I want to be like them one day? Who do I have influence over? And then look at those two lists and make some decisions on what might need to change in your life. Because I am telling you that an 18-year-old named Josiah repented and changed the course of some family who was raising a little boy named Daniel. And you, you thought the adversity was there for Josiah, but the adversity was in Daniel's life. And had Josiah not walked that out, who knows? what wickedness and evil Daniel might have been given over to. We are influencers because we are believers. And if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life, the invitation is to make him Lord of your life. We, we aren't talking about a life that is, that is sometimes painted as being without complications because that is exactly the opposite of what we're seeing right here. Sometimes we will walk through difficult scenarios just like anybody else. In fact, Jesus said, when the world hates you and opposes you and comes after you, remember they did it to me first. So there's no promise of it being like a, like a, you know, like a constant drug high or something, you know, where you don't have to worry about anything. Secondarily, my kids think drugs are funny. I don't know why. Maybe because for their whole lives, we've always been like hugs for drugs and then we don't ever give them drugs, but uh, because it rhymes. That's what the Princess Bride did to, my, did, did to me, if you ever saw that movie. I rhyme everything. Uh, sometimes it'll be difficult, right? Okay? But the other side of it is that as you become a believer, I'm telling you it is a richer, fuller life filled with purpose and meaning. And you might be a believer still trying to figure out what that purpose is, but that's digging in the Word and doing the hard work, but it, is, it, it makes it worth it. Let's stand to our feet here. If you are online, if you would, take a moment and pause what you're doing. Uh, If you are kind of busy in the house or wherever you're at, just go to the Lord in prayer with us. I want to give people an opportunity to respond as we uh, uh, end today. If you would, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to pray for anyone today that wants to accept Jesus as Lord of their life. 
If that's you and you're making that decision after the service, if you're here live, if you would come and talk to me, I'd love to connect with you. Uh, if you're online, uh, you can let somebody in the chat know that you're making that decision, or uh, you can even shoot us an email. Mine is jim at citychurch.life. But if you're making that decision, it's really simple. The Word says that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. It is a, a confession that is followed by a lifestyle, a confession of faith that I can't do this on my own. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this thing work. I'm not making it happen the way that it needs to. And I need, I need a Savior to come in and give me direction and redeem my life. And that's what the prayer is all about. So, Jesus, we come to you right now. And, and with anyone who would be making that decision, that decision right now to submit to you, to repent of their sins and to change the way that they're living, that today, God, you would be with them as they make that confession, that you would receive them, and Lord, that they would be encouraged during this this season of coming to know you, Lord, I pray that you would send believers into their lives to encourage them, to help them in, in their journey of coming to know your word and to know you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. I also want to pray for everybody who is a believer right now that might be feeling this, this like, man, I feel like I'm, I have no purpose. I feel like, like my life isn't making a difference. And I just pray that, God, today they would be encouraged that sometimes you use your faithful not to, to, to lead rallies and campaigns of thousands of people or to change the world in some big explosive way, but instead sometimes you use your people to impact a single life whose destiny is yet to be fulfilled. And I pray that we would be encouraged as the body of Christ here today that we play a role in passing this incredible heritage of faith to the next generation and that they will have to face their own trials and tribulations when it comes to their faith. And that, Lord, the way that we model it here now today, we need to understand will impact the way that they will handle their own scenarios and situations. Lord, let us be encouraged. Lord, be, be glorified in our lives in all that we do. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen, amen. Guys, we love you. I hope that you have a fantastic week. Midweek this Wednesday, we get online, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. You can join us. Uh, otherwise, we will see you next Sunday. Love you guys.